You've seen the movies. But you haven't read the comics? What? You think the comics are inaccessible? That's Steve Vinson. That's Paul Schultz. And we've got issues. All right, so this episode, we're moving on from Spider-Man to the X-Men. This was May of 1975. Let's see, I was six, you were seven. Were you into comic books by then? Do you think you might have read this one? I did read this one, courtesy of D. I had read this one and the issue prior to it that was uh, the Wolverine's first appearance. Against the Hulk. Against the Hulk, yes. That was Hulk uh, number 181, I believe. People will go like, well, actually, Wolverine appeared in Hulk 180. Yes, technically he did in the very last page. (laughs) We should be so lucky that we have enough listeners who are intelligent enough (laughs) <laughs> and are paying close enough attention that they would go, oh, well, actually, it was Hulk 180. Hey, tweet us or yeah. Instagram us or whatever <laughs> the thing is when you listen to this and uh, correct us all you want. But yeah, no, it was it was May of 1975. Um, I had just I had just started, as a matter of fact. And by the time I was in third grade was when I had I had read it because it, Dee's older brother used to buy comics, and he'd bring them in, and we'd read them when we were supposed to be doing our work. Hmm. And unfortunately, because we read them so much, they were destroyed. And as the result, you know, we contributed to the rarity of them. So you're welcome if you have a copy. You were super, super into the X-Men when we were kids. I I do remember that. Yep. It was my jam. I, I started after the whole big... What, what what's referred to as the Phoenix and the Dark Phoenix saga? I picked up religiously shortly thereafter, but I had read those books, which were ser- you know several years after this one. This one's called Giant Size X Men Number One, Second Genesis, and just the title alone tells us there's previously a team known as the X Men. Mm-hmm. And why don't you give us a brief history of this? The X Men first appeared back when Marvel was in its full swing. Every book they were putting out was a hit. Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, Avengers, Thor. They couldn't miss. Well, what had happened was Stan Lee had gotten tired. He was getting wore out. He got tired of coming up with origins for people. And he happened to cross the word mutant one day and decided that rather than come up with new reasons why people had powers, he's like, well, what if they're born that way? And it kind of launched a thing in his head about, like... It was a way to play on, to, to create a metaphor for minorities and oppressed people and things like that. Because while the X-Men were the good guys, because they symbolized the next level of human evolution, they were feared by normal people. So they were protecting the people that, that feared them the most. And the X-Men's biggest nemesis is Magneto. And the clever thing about Magneto versus Professor X, who was the leader of the X-Men, is they were a metaphor for Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Even though they were two white guys and all of the X-Men were white, Mm -hmm. they cleverly kind of buried that. You don't want to get hit on the head with a metaphor. You want the metaphor to be subtle. Mm -hmm. Well, for some reason, the X-Men didn't quite take the way the rest of the Marvel books did. And they were never a top seller. And towards the end of the original series, the the original team's run, they even brought in um, Neil Adams, who you may remember from the previous books we've discussed. But even he, his artwork couldn't save the book. So it went in the reprints for about five years. They would just repaint the covers and put them out as the next consecutive issue. And while it still had a fan base, it just wasn't doing well. 
Well, it turns out that what happened was the the fellow who was in charge of like international distribution of com- of Marvel Comics hit on the idea that if they had an international team, it would appeal to more than just kids in the states. Mm. So the the idea was hatched, and they they put together this international team of mutants, and that ended up being Giant Size X Men number one, which from then on. X-Men was supposed to be a quarterly title, but the book unexpectedly caught on like wildfire. So they had to make it a monthly title. So the original writer, Len Wein, had to leave the book because he was so busy doing a bunch of other stuff. And that's when uh, the writer Chris Claremont came in and really took the whole minority and the whole oppression thing and the whole fear thing and just catapulted it in his stories. But that wouldn't have been possible without this particular issue. Well, that ma- that makes total sense. I mean, the first guy, Kurt Wagner in Bavaria. Mm, Nightcrawler. Pretty awesome that they picked him to go first. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, the thing that struck me was, so they introduced Nightcrawler, who's like, I don't know, it's, it was almost like Frankenstein, because, like, of, of course it has to be Bavaria. Yes. Of course it has to be Germany. <laughs> and, of course, they wanted to stake him through the heart. Right, and they're <laughs> carrying their torches. and Yeah. It's pretty cool that you picked the books that you picked previous to this, because... I think for people that maybe don't read comics, that it, I don't think it always comes through very well in the movies. The people that live with the superheroes, like the people in that universe, mm-hmm. I'm starting to catch on. They don't always see them like we do. Or like, and when I say we, I mean those of us who don't read comics. Mm-hmm. Like we just assume everybody loves them. They're heroes. Like everybody loves a hero, right? Yeah. No. In many cases, they fear them. Because they're different and they're scary. Yeah. And like you look at this Nightcrawler guy and who knows what his backstory is. You're going to be like, oh, I do. But, you know, I'm just sitting here like, (laughs) I don't know his backstory, but I I know this is a superhero comic. And I'm thinking he's probably like Spider-Man. Like he probably tries to help, Mm -hmm. but everybody sees him as this monster. So they're chasing him down. They want to burn him alive. Yeah. And then in the final panel of his introductory sequence. Yeah, the final page. Professor X shows up. The Nightcrawler says, can you help me be normal? (laughs) And Professor X is like, after tonight, (laughs) would you really want to be normal? There's so much subtle dialogue like that in this book. And then the Nightcrawler responds, perhaps not. I want only to be a whole Kurt Wagner. You can make me that. I will go with you. So I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. This is 1975, right? Yeah. And you and I have had on our on our other shows, we've talked a lot about how culturally things are changing rapidly, mm-hmm. especially when it comes to identity when you're a teenager trying to find your identity. Mm-hmm. And this whole concept when we were kids, like every, you, know, you wanted to be normal. Yeah. And the way people talked about it is everybody just wants to be normal. And I read that, that just those two panels, and I thought, I don't think we do want to be normal. We just want to be whole. Exactly. I never wanted to be normal, but whole, yes. We want to feel like ourselves. We want to feel like a whole person, mm-hmm. whatever your particular identity happens to be. And so that was the, the line where Xavier got him, or I suppose you, those of you in the business call him Xavier. I think if he were out now, we'd call him Xavier, but for some reason, Xavier became the, the norm for him. And just what you just said about the whole idea of mutants being a metaphor for people born different than what we consider mainstream or, quote, normal. Which is essentially every comic book fan. We're not normal, but but we, we want to be a whole person. We want to be ourselves. Mm-hmm. I read this one at camp. 
I might not have been like seven like you were. If you would have read this at camp when you were seven, you would have got beat up. <laughs> yeah, probably. Thus proving the point of the book. <laughs> I'd have been like, I don't want to be normal. I just want to be whole. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the camp counselors. It was quickly clear to me. Wow, this is an origin story. But then, of course, I had not had the history that you just said. Mm. So I was thinking I was reading the origin of the X-Men. Oh, my God, this is so cool. But then the next page, the Wolverine appears. And I thought, is this the original, like the first introduction to the Wolverine? Professor X is like, oh, no, I heard about your battle with the Hulk. And then they put the little footnote that was in Hulk 181. And I was like, is that how all of our favorite characters get introduced? I remember (laughs) the Spider-Man thing. It's like, oh, you were off battling the Hulk. Apparently the Wolverine's working for the military. The Canadian military. Oh yeah, Quebec, Canada. It says that right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we got the German guy. Now we got the Canadian guy, the Wolverine. Mm-hmm. He agrees to go with Professor X. And then, what do you call the square? Panels. Yeah. So we get two panels of the Banshee. The Banshee's like sitting there trying to enjoy a movie. He's down at the Grand Ole Opry. At the Grand Ole Opry, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. He's trying to enjoy, I don't know what. Probably Bill Monroe. I didn't really get where where the Banshee comes in, though. Well, he had periodically, for the original team, he had periodically been at odds with them and teamed up with them. You know, that's why Professor X knew of his existence and sought him out to get him to join the team because he knew he wasn't he wasn't a bad guy he just they just crossed paths it happens a lot in comics it'll be the two heroes will bump into each other there'll be a miscommunication they'll fight and then the cliche is the real bad guy shows up and they team up and beat him you know well with the green arrow and uh, green lantern yeah so then he goes from Nashville, Tennessee to Kenya. Mm-hmm. Now we're introduced to the Nubian princess, mm-hmm. Aurora. So she's got some skills when it comes to controlling the weather. She she didn't just have powers over the weather. She had goddess-like powers over the weather, which is why the people of her village treated her as such. Like a goddess. Yes. And then Professor X, of course, gives her the option of, it's time to leave the nest, little bird. <laughs> you know, use your powers for the good of everybody, not just for the good of your village. And for probably your own good, right? She's being worshipped as a goddess. Who wouldn't want that, right? Right. A theme for this book is the greater good, and that's a total superhero trope. Mm. All these guys in their own right are capable of doing good, but you put them all together, just like that that's the mark of a good superhero team. So we got North America, Canada, and Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. We had Germany, Aurora from Africa. Now we're going to skip over to Asia, Japan specifically. Mr. Sunfire, Shiro Yoshida. I would have to get out a globe and double check but professor x is doing some serious globe hopping <laughs> you'd think he would have lined these <laughs> lined these up a little bit there's no indication to me here <laughs> of how much time is in between these meetings yeah that's the nature of a compressed story they really you know you pick the beats but you don't really get the sense of time unless it's in the dialogue you know if i'm one of the people that uh, is waiting to be rescued i'd be like could you hurry it up a little <laughs> He probably didn't optimize his route, let's say. All right, so he goes to Japan and picks up Sunfire. Who's an asshole. It's kind of a little slack. I mean, just 30 years prior to this, uh, we nuked two of his cities. So That's the nucleus, no pun intended, of where his powers come from. All right, then we end up in Siberia. Some dude punches a tractor. <laughs> Peter Rasputin. Rasputin, what a perfect name, because there's the tie-in. 
Like if anybody's like, how does this uh, comic series tie into the history series? We'll probably talk about Rasputin in the history series. I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he seems like a pretty strong dude. He's able to punch a tractor. Full disclosure, he's my favorite X-Man. Uh, what's his superhero name? Colossus. See, I thought it says, as an armored Colossus snatches her from its path. Yeah. As he sh- saves this little girl. That's his, his sister. Does he ever get the power to heal a hemophiliac little emperor's son? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then we go back to North America. There's an Apache named John Proudstar mm-hmm. who wrestles a bison. To prove that not all Apache sit on their porches and dream about the old days. Yeah, I mean, there's a theme there, too. I mean, they're proud people. John Proudstar is probably, at that time in Marvel Comics, is probably the angriest superhero they've got. He's not an easy person to get along with. Did they used to call him Ira Hayes? He won't answer anymore, though. Not the whiskey-drinking Indian? Or the superhero that went to Krakoa? So then we get the big splash page where it's like, this is almost the whole team. And then out of the back room comes Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops. That's right. So Cyclops apparently was a member of the original team. Yes. Oh, and then we hear about the magic suits that somebody named Reed Richards built for them. Who is Reed Richards? He was Mr. Fantastic of the Fantastic Four. Oh. Arguably the smartest person on the planet. I mean, he was he was a super genius. And the unstable molecules that they talk about, which is what makes their suits not basically burst into flames or anything when they're using their powers, stems from... When Fantastic Four got their powers, they were exposed to quote-unquote cosmic rays. And the cosmic rays altered the fabric of their the, their space uniforms. So R- Richards just reverse engineered that and created with these things called unstable molecules. Got it. Those are pretty cool. So this is a great way to do this because Cyclops comes out and he had gone to an island mm-hmm. with the original X-Men. Because Professor X found his, see, mutant brains put out different signals than human brains, right? you know, homo sapien brains do. And he picked up what he perceived as the most powerful mutant, you know, energy or whatever he's ever experienced on this island and sent the original X-Men, the original team to go find him before Magneto does because they were always like in a race to get the most mutants. Ah. Professor X wanted him for peace, whereas Magneto believed that he called well. He called mutant the mutant kind a uh, homo superior. He believed that by any means necessary, they deserved to be dominant over humanity. Whereas Professor X wanted to coexist with humanity. Okay. So when he when they got there, something went horribly wrong, <laughs> and Cyclops was the only one that that got out of there. Right. Made it back to you, Professor X, and was like his eyes were screwed up, but it made him more powerful. Something made him more powerful. Professor X gave him some new glasses uh, to help him control the power. That's how I feel whenever I get new glasses. We were joking earlier about the globetrotting Professor Xavier, but Cyclops explains that while Professor X was out globetrotting looking for the mutants, he was home at the mansion training to use his increased powers. Mm -hmm. So that implies that time passed. Ah, yeah. So, yeah, he was out there for a while. Yeah. So they fly to the island to investigate the island where shit went down. The previous X-Men went missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, once they get there, it's like giant lobsters and crazy monster trees and big birds and stuff just start attacking <laughs> them left and right. Mass hysteria. It's sort of like uh, Indiana Jones all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You know, like all these ancient 
looking things are starting to attack them. Mm -hmm. Then they seem to be rescuing the previous X-Men, like they find them somehow. But then the island comes to life. It turns out it's not an island after all. It's one big monster, which I thought was really, really cool. Yeah, and imagine, well, I can't, I don't want to say, imagine reading this for the first time. I can totally imagine that. <laughs> it was it was very like out of left field, you know. Well, it was it was sort of like in Star Wars when they flew into that asteroid thing, and then figured out that they were actually in the spoiler alert. They were actually in the stomach of some prehistoric <laughs> space amoeba, and suddenly the X Men are fighting the monster, but also Professor X is fighting the monster telepathically. That was Professor X's thing. He would fight villains in the astral plane or whatever you want to call it with his mental powers where the X-Men were fighting them on the physical plane. And it seemed like it was almost like he was distracting the monster. Yes. You know, having this telepathic fight while they were preparing a trap, basically. Exactly that. Spoiler alert, <laughs> they end up destroying the monster island thing. Basically by the, the character Polaris who has magnetic powers and Storm who controls you know lightning and whatnot ramped up polaris's powers causing the island to be released from earth's gravity and hence floating out of the space and then the next thing you know 13 x-men <laughs> <laughs> so obviously wolverine there have been movies mm -hmm. i don't know so there are 13 x-men now mm -hmm. the other ones though the ones that are introduced in this book mm -hmm. other than wolverine i don't remember a colossus movie they had x-men movies that's why i chose this particular book as one of our accessible books is because there there have been x-men movies and while they don't necessarily focus on this storyline for some reason a lot of these characters have appeared in those movies including some of the older characters the movies kind of got the cart before the horse a little bit and started with the team that everybody knew yeah especially and when you boil it down to it especially wolverine yes Wolverine's casting was extremely important to the story. Everybody else was interchangeable, except for maybe Professor X, who Patrick Stewart was just born to play Professor X. Yes. In the same way that Hugh Jackman was born to play Wolverine. Everybody knows about the X-Men thanks to these movies, and I thought, well, this is the story that launched them. What would you want from a movie that included this storyline? A big giant monster island, dude. Especially now, because with, with these Godzilla movies that are coming out. Yeah. And making a bank, the audiences will accept a big, giant monster island now. You know, we practically have them in the Godzilla movies. So I think they'd be silly not to use this storyline. The thing that strikes me here is, while I, I do know Wolverine, huge at the cinema, Professor X, also huge at the cinema, what I don't remember is these other characters at the movies, but there is no doubt that X-Men has been a hit at the theaters. Yeah. We have not yet gotten to the colossal, you know, no pun intended, but the colossal <laughs> mega industry that the Avengers became. Mm -hmm. Because when somebody says Marvel Cinematic Universe, I, hey, I'm talking for, I'm, I'm the guy, I'm the outsider, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm just telling you, when somebody says Marvel Cinematic Universe, you're thinking Iron Man, you're thinking Avengers. Black Panther, Infinity Wars, Captain Marvel. So we haven't yet quite got there. Right. But I'll tell you what, people know who the X-Men are. People know who Wolverine is. Mm -hmm. 
people know who Professor Xavier is. Mm-hmm. And while, yes, we talked about Spider-Man last week and everybody knows who Spider-Man is. Mm-hmm. But my point is, this is probably where we have started to, to sort of peel the onion back. Mm-hmm. It says, why are things so, What? where did all of this come from? Yeah. It, it's this is like where it came from that's one of the main reasons why i recommended this book to you because this is where it comes from and in order to get where we're going with this series well, later on with another x-men story it kind of pays to have a little backstory and it also shows like okay what you've read here and now, now this this the, the dialogue in this book is pretty good as far as it's not it so dated and oh, it's like it. and it's yeah. very well written because Len Wein was a hell of a writer. But it's it's, it's definitely the 70s. Mm-hmm. This is where comics were. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to show you where they peaked as far as story and more grounded in reality. You've been listening to We've Got Issues. We've Got Issues is written and produced by Paul Schultz and Steve Vinson. Copyright Big Broccoli Studios. Music by Eric Fulmer. For more by Big Broccoli Studios, go to www.bigbroccolistudios.com.